Good morning. Jesus came. He both entered our world and exited as king of the Jews. When he came, we read in Matthew, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then when Jesus left this world, we read, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So in order to understand Jesus' mission and passion clearly, it helps us to look at him through Jewish eyes. And this is where Isaiah comes into the picture. Let me give you a little bit of background about Isaiah. He's the foremost of the Old Testament writing prophets. There was a number of prophets in the Old Testament, and some of them wrote their prophecies down, and Isaiah was the first and foremost of these. He wrote during a very stormy period in which the kingdom of Israel was declining in power, and the kingdom of Assyria was increasing in power. About 733 B.C., The king of Aram located in Syria and the king of Israel in the north, Israel was divided in half. The northern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah. And in, again, 733 B.C., when Assyria was threatening growing in power, the king of Aram and the king of Israel to the northern kingdom tried to convince the southern king the king of Judah, to come into league with them and deal with the Assyrians. Um, The king in the south chose instead to ask Assyria for help. And so what ended up happening, that happened and the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and sent the northern kingdom into captivity. In about 722, about 20 years later, the Assyrians turned their eyes towards the southern kingdom in order to destroy them, moved through city after city after city, coming right up to the threshold of Jerusalem. And at that time, Hezekiah, and one of the wonderful stories in the Old Testament, they got right to the the borders of Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah prayed. He says, because they really didn't have the power to be able to deal with what happened. And because Hezekiah prayed, God said to him through the prophet, they will not enter this city. And they were running out of food. And then on one evening, they woke up and 186,000 Assyrians were dead. And they were routed. There was a plague that struck the army all of a sudden. And then the um, Assyrians withdrew and The southern kingdom was safe for a period of time. Nevertheless, Isaiah in his prophecy warns that the reprieve will be temporary. As the northern kingdom went into captivity, that's what Isaiah predicted would happen. The southern kingdom would go into captivity as well, and that's what happened. It would take place a, a, a century later, but 
Isaiah, in his writing, he assumes in the latter part of his prophecy, last half, that this has already occurred, and he looks ahead to the time when, on the far side of these captivities, God would redeem his people from Babylon, just as he as he rescued them from Egypt. That's why Isaiah is called, I think we mentioned the Bible in miniature, the first 20, the first 39 books are books of judgment. And it describes how both the northern and southern kingdom will go into captivity, but the last 27 chapters are chapters of salvation, predicting what will happen on the far side. Isaiah his role as prophet began with a vision. Let me just read. This isn't in your worship folder, but I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, <clears throat> he was a very um, long-reigned king who reigned for at least 40 years and, and really returned Israel to its heyday, the southern kingdom. And anyways, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. and With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And Isaiah goes on to talk about this vision that he has. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And that was Isaiah's response, and that was the beginning of his tenure as prophet beginning and again about 740 and he prophesied for about 60 years um, God charged Isaiah with a difficult message to denounce his country's sin and to predict national disaster and that's what he did in his earliest addresses he condemns the social and religious evils of the people their luxury their injustice their inhumanity and their materialism. He was in constant conflict with the war party in Jerusalem, which is they wanted to kind of go to war and and push away a Syrian threat. And what Isaiah said, you're not going to be successful. And so they charged Isaiah. They felt he was treasonous because he was telling the people, don't go, don't battle against the Assyrians, don't battle against the Babylonians, because this is from God. He is doing this. And and they said, no, of course it's not. God will never allow Israel to be conquered. He will never allow Jerusalem to be taken. And that's exactly what happened. But it didn't make Isaiah very popular, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, 
although Isaiah lived over 700 years before Jesus Christ came to earth, and that's when he prophesied, he, he prophesies, have a number of prophecies concerning Jesus, and the one we come to in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, let's read. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he was made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Um, amen. Yeah, that, that is one of those prophecies. Um, under Uzziah, who was in the south, and Jeroboam, who was the king in the north, Israel's boundaries were extended. Commerce and agriculture increased. It was heydays. But even though there were socio-political advances, there were spiritual declines at the same time. Micah is a prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah, as were Amos and Hosea. They all prophesied at the same time. Look what Micah has to say about what is happening in Israel at the time. It's in your worship folder, Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. He writes, The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For... The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The prophets trace the spiritual decline to the leaders. What we find here is that the people, it's moral it's moral flatlining. If there is no truth, there's no justice, it's really a terrible time. Um, those who do evil are really good at it. And when they trace why in the world does this exist, it's they 
focus on the leaders, and they talk about the leaders, and it's not that they, well, look what it says, the prince and judge ask for a bribe. So you can get justice for a price, and that's what they do. So they exact from the people remuneration, and they'll turn the hands of justice when that occurs. Uh, It says, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. So those in leadership are not thinking of the welfare of the people that they serve, but they're thinking how to pad their own pockets and how to get what they want. And that's, the leaders are just selfish. But what ends up happening when the leaders are selfish, when the shepherds are selfish, the sheep are anxious. And that's why when Jesus came and when the prophets wrote, they always targeted the leaders, because as the leaders lead, so the people, their spiritual, their life is really set by what the leaders do. If the leaders are benevolent and merciful and just and kind, the people are satisfied, they thrive, And but when the leaders are not, and this is what Jesus understood and the prophets understood, When the leaders are not, when they exist to have their own agenda fulfilled, then the people suffer. That's why we'll find there's such good news for this leader who will be born. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When you have a good leader, it's not just the leaders who benefit, it's the people who benefit from good leadership. And that's why Isaiah writes Micah says the same thing Um, I want you to keep in mind I want you to remember these words Um, Micah okay you're going to remember this okay here it is for the son treats his father with contempt the daughter rises up against her mother the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law man's enemies are the men of his own house we're going to come back to that in a little bit But Isaiah, talking about um, what's happening in his day, says in the former time, in the beginning of his prophecy, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. The light has dawned. The inhabitants of Galilee were those who are being talked about, are walking in darkness. The two northernmost tribes, they were northeastern tribes, were Zebulun and Naphtali. And so they were in the remote parts, away from the capital, way south. So they were up and away, and they were the closest to foreign influences. They had the largest mixed population. And being most remote, it was nearest, again, to foreign cultures and they had their fair share of fair share of foreign influences this district it's being described in the north was despised even in new testament time these are the people walking in darkness and when it talks about the northernmost part of israel these were the people isaiah predicted to whom a great light would appear and this prophecy was fulfilled when jesus departing from Nazareth, went to Capernaum. Listen to what it says in Matthew 4. It's not your thing, but just listen. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, 
he withdrew into Galilee. Galilee is where this part of Israel exists. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. A lot of mixed stuff happening there. It was not purely Jewish as in the south. It was in the north, and it was away from the capital. That's why it was called Galilee of the Gentiles, half-breeds, where Samaritans lived, people like that. Um, These are the people that, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, and again, Matthew's writing, so that, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Um, it's describing what happened when Jesus moved to that area. He is the light. And the people have seen a great light. It's interesting. You look at... Um, the northern part of Galilee is up here, and the southern part, Jerusalem, is down here. And um, here's where most of the disciples were from, from Galilee of the Gentiles. These were individuals who were used to foreign influences. They lived away from the capital. And there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There's one left, one who was from the south. Who do you imagine that would be? Judas Iscariot. He was from the south. And when we look at, we've talked about this before, why did Judas have such a difficult time? He was from the south, where the influence of Judaism was strongest where the pull of the Pharisees would have been strongest. He didn't live in the north where there had been separation from Judaism over the centuries. He was from the south, and for him, the pull of Judaism was a little bit too strong. And so what we see, what was what was wrong with Judas? What we find biblically, it seems, the ones in the north, there had been a separation from. And sometimes in order to have moved towards something, you have to be separated from something else. They had been pulled from pure Judaism. And so when Jesus came along, they could adhere to him. There had been a from, and so there could be a to. Sometimes if there's no from, there's no to, but you understand that, right? Some of you were pulled from different religious disciplines, And having been distanced from, it's a very painful thing to be distanced from something, something that feels comfortable, that feels we haven't been around that long. So in your history, uh, even the way Christmas is celebrated and things like that, it's it's not as comfortable. There is a from. But the thing about a difficult from, when that occurs, it gives room for a beneficial too, and that's what we find with the disciples. They found it a little bit more possible to walk with Jesus because it wasn't so stark a difference. Um, That is what the darkness was like in the north. The north was uh, dark, but it was a place where when light dawned, uh, well, look what it says in Isaiah uh, 
9.3 says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. On the far side of darkness, there is light and joy. And there's three reasons. Three reasons for joy. Number one is there's going to be a mighty deliverance. And what it says, Isaiah says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. It's talking about what happened with uh, Gideon. When God threw over the Midians with just a handful, 300 people, um, that was going to happen. There's going to be a deliverance. And, I, and Israel was going to experience it. At this time, they are under, they're going to be under foreign domination. It's going to be the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And it really was terrible what happened. In the 8th century and the 6th century, they were led away from their homeland, and they were led away, especially the Assyrian captivity on hooks. It was awful, just it was just awful, almost indescribable how bad it was. Um, but on the far side of that, there would be a mighty deliverance. The second reason for joy, that there would be complete peace, there would be the end of war. It says every warrior's boot used in battle. And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. The reason is you won't need them anymore. We don't need warriors, don't need boots, and these garments rolled in blood. We don't need to keep them because war is not going to happen. That's what Isaiah predicts. And the third reason and the basis for the other two, the reason that there was going to be peace, the reason that there wasn't going to be any war is that a child would be born. And again, the the portion It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on, and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The birth of the child will bring peace to the people, for he himself will be called the Prince of Peace. The birth of this child is the gift of God. And this is what Jesus ends up fulfilling, the prophecy made 700 years prior to that. And these titles are given to him, and it describes his character and his reign. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful doesn't mean just great. It means supernatural. It means supernatural. In, in the story with Samson, when Samson was born, he was uh, uh, the one. He was a well, he was a, a dude. <laughs> he, his father was a uh, Manoah, and so they had this this being, this angelic angel of the Lord, appeared to him, and ended up saying, "You're going to have a kid." And so they tried to feed him something, and then he wouldn't eat because he was spiritual. And um, so then he said, "Well, at least give me your name." And the angel said, why do you ask me my name, seeing it is wonderful, supernatural? I can't tell you my name. It's too wonderful to even say. And so when it says wonderful counselor, it's not just neat counselor or a great counselor. It is a supernatural counselor. 
supernatural. Um, the root was used to describe the miracles which God performed in Egypt, the dividing of the sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, leading by pillar of cloud and fire, rocks that gave forth water. Those were wonders. And that's what this counselor would be like. He will be a wonderful counselor. In those days, kings always had to have a lot of advisors around them. And, and the current administration goes through those advisors on a regular basis in our country. Uh, just saying, just saying. Um, so, but this king won't need counselors around him. It says in Isaiah 11, he has the spirit of wisdom that rests on him. There's no need for him to be surrounded by a bunch of counselors because he is a supernatural counselor who doesn't need for anyone to tell him what needs to be done. He knows what needs to be done. He is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The fact that a child is born calls attention to the fact that he will be human. The fact that he is Mighty God tells us that he will be divine, and so that's what this child will be, both human and divine, both God and man. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Father signifies the benevolence of a perfect ruler over people whom he loves as his children. When the king is a fatherly king, has a fatherly disposition, and you are his subject, you are in a really good spot. Because the one ruling has the welfare of his people in mind, and this ruler will not just be father, but will be, well, everlasting father. Um, the Messiah will be an eternal father to his people. And again, you see why the joy. It's This could be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be a mighty God, an everlasting father, different than all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah, different even than David. This is going to be the the kind of king that you want to be under. Um, And he's called the Prince of Peace. Eternal peace is more than just a cessation of, of hostilities. Peace in the Bible means wellness. It means wholeness. It it comes from the word shalom. It was a greeting. Shalom. Shalom means wellness, wholeness. And that's what this king would bring, peace. Um, when you come to the Bible and you read about what happened in the Old Testament and the war and the genocides, and you wonder, what? kind of God is that, and then you come to the New Testament, and there's a paradox here. Um, In some ways, the Old Testament and the New Testament are reversed, upside down. You find things in the Old that almost are flipped relative to, let me give you an example. There was a time when David numbers the fighting men, King David. He wasn't supposed to do that. It was a reflection that he was kind of depending on the might of his army. Anyways, he got it caused his kingdom to come into trouble. An angel of the Lord, and again, when we talked about angels, if an angel's around, you're probably not going to say, oh, isn't that cute? 
Angels are warriors. And when angels show up, people die. And so an angel showed up. And in order to discipline David's kingdom, and tens of thousands of Israelites were killed. And it was at the threshing floor of this guy named Ariuna the Jebusite. You don't need to remember that, but just you do remember this. So at this threshing floor of Ariuna the Jebusite, that's where this curse was finally extinguished. And so, but it reflected in it judgment and terrible judgment. When Solomon was looking for a place to, to build the temple, David didn't get to build the temple. He really wanted to, but he didn't get to. Solomon was the one to build the temple. They were looking for a place to situate a temple. And guess where they situated it? The threshing floor of Ariuna the Jebusite, in the place where there's curse, God places blessing. You find that a lot in the Bible. Um, do you remember that? What you, I read in that verse and in Isaiah's prophecy, it says, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, man's enemies are the men of his own house. Things were so bad in Israel at the time that that's what it was like. Father against son, mother against daughter. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. A man's enemies were enemies of, a man's enemies were in his own household. And that's how bad things were. Now, with that in mind, look at what Jesus says to his disciples. That's what he says to them. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Jesus is speaking. Wait a minute. I thought you were supposed to be the Prince of Peace. But here's what he tells his disciples. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Those verses sound familiar? The very things that constituted why there's curse in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen in the New. Well, let's, we'll talk about why would he do that? It goes on, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He goes on, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He is the Prince of Peace for some and not for others. It's important to understand who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to 12 disciples, 12 Jews. And what Jesus tells them, there will be, he will be a Prince of Peace, and his reign will bring in peace for those who will be part of the church, but those through whom this message is extended, these first responders, they are Jewish. And they bear 
the difficulty so that we experience the blessing. That's what you find in Isaiah's prophecies. And especially with Jesus, there talks about, and we'll talk about the next couple of weeks, the suffering servant. In order to extend blessing to us, our older brothers, the Jews, the first Jewish Christians to respond, they experienced, well, what this verse talks about. When the Bible, when Jesus is telling them, whoever, well, look what it says, when he tells them, um, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, at that time, if you were a Jew who had become a Christian, and you went to your mother and father and said, I'm going to follow Jesus, and what he wants is he wants us to bring good news to Gentiles, to tell them that God shines on them and he is wanting to extend his favor to them. And if you are a Jewish mother or father and your son or daughter comes to you and says that, in the first century you're not going to smile and say, well, isn't that wonderful? Because this was the last thing you would ever conceive of. In the Old Testament, the Jews are the accepted ones, and we are outside of the covenants of promise. God makes his covenants with Jews, and we're out. And so the message Jesus gives the disciples to give to not only Jews, but through them to Gentiles, is that God's turning his favor toward Gentiles. And so he gives them, these Jews, messages to extend to us. And Jesus is the king of these Jews. The basis for spiritual death becomes the basis for spiritual life. What you learn about light, biblically, light doesn't just overshadow darkness and kind of get rid of it from above. That would be nice. What happens with light in the Bible is that light enters darkness. It enters it, and it shines from the inside out. It doesn't distance from darkness. It penetrates it. It enters it. That's why Jesus comes, and he enters into the darkness, and he explodes it from the inside out. Um, It's the nature of salvation as well. Blessing begins where curse leaves off. The death of Jews becomes the life of Gentiles. I'm going to read you a verse, and maybe we're in a position to understand it a little more clearly. It talks about jars of clay. Let me read this to you. Paul writes, as a Jew, as Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and James and Judas, And Simon and the apostles were Jews, tasked with a very difficult task to take a message that will not be popular. It's wonderful for us, but they would, well, here's what it says. Paul says, we have this treasure in jaws of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, 
persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Here's what he says. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I have a question. Who is the us and who is the you? They have very different experiences. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Who is the us? And who is the you? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Death is at work in us. Who are the jars of clay? Our older brothers and sisters. A glorious message encased within something that wasn't treated very nicely. It was treated in common ways, but those containers, they worked because God made them work, and they were able to transmit a message that we enjoy to this day. But Isaiah would have us look back and look at the fingerprints that opened the door for heaven to us. We have us look at those fingerprints, and those fingerprints that opens the door to eternity and eternal life, they are Jewish. And there is coming a time, we talk about this, when the time of the Gentiles will be over. And at some point in the future, I don't know what this looks like, God will turn back to his firstborn to and through whom salvation has been extended to Gentiles, and they will be welcomed into the kingdom. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Uh, Grace is unmerited favor, unmerited favor, channeled to them by us. Come on up. Father, thank you for your eternal purposes. None of this is a mistake. You made a covenant with Abraham. You said that all peoples in the earth will be blessed through him and his seed. The children of Abraham and the Son of God, thank you for your purposes to reach into the Gentile world through your firstborn to bring the hope of eternal existence. And as we hear this word and, and believe it, we are included in your forever family. And I want to thank you for that and for the hands that and to and through whom we have this message to our older brothers and sisters, the children of Abraham, the sons of Israel, whom you will turn towards again. And, and we're grateful for that. You don't bring somebody into your family and discard them. You use them sometimes to do difficult things, to bring messages to foreign peoples that you don't know. And and as that happens, separated from mother and father and at odds with family, and yet your eternal purposes are good and just, 
Thank you for Jesus and for your character. You are a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Being able to be part of an eternal kingdom where these type of priorities are lived in day in and day out, we so look forward to being part of that kingdom to be with you face to face. You are such a good king and ruler, and we are so fortunate that you determined that you will be our king and our father. In Jesus' name, amen.